you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Micah. And we will be in, I think, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible tonight. Uh, I say that about a lot of them, but, but this is really a special chapter. And if you want to witness to somebody sometime, you've got to take them to this chapter. And, and there's just no explanation for how Micah could predict the birthplace of Jesus Christ other than the fact that there is a God and there is, uh, that all of this was planned before the foundation of the world. Now, Micah chapter 5 is a difficult chapter. Uh, there's a lesson here that I hope you get before we get into the book of Revelation because I try to teach this as we're in the prophets. The prophets are not chronological. For the most part, they are, but there's several times where the prophets go back and forth in time, and this is one of those examples. In fact, he's all over the place in chapter number 5. And, and that's true in Revelation to some degree, too, and so... Uh, you, you just can't say these events take place in chronological order. You'll see that there's no way possible. He goes, you know, as, in, as we look at chapter number five. Uh, when we get to the first verse, uh, before he heads off into this great prophecy in, chapter, in verse number two, he's going to continue on really uh, if I was... Uh, dividing this book up into chapters and verses, and you all know that in the Hebrew it's, it's not divided up. It just goes straight through. Uh, but if I was dividing this up, chat, this first part, verse in chapter 5 would be part of chapter number 4. Because in chapter number 4, uh, Micah had talked about Israel being taken captive, being destroyed and taken captive by the Babylonians. And I think now in Verse number one, he's going to continue on uh, with that theme and, and then he's going to break and he's going to go uh, forward in time and talk about the coming Messiah. But, but let's pick up now in, in verse number one. He says, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, you who depend upon your armies. Gather yourself in truth, but it's not going to do you any good. That's basically what Mike is saying. For Nebuchadnezzar, that's who he's talking about, Nebuchadnezzar. If you look back in verse number 10, uh, he, I think, yes, yeah, verse number 10. He says, be in pain and labor and bring, to bring forth. He talks about labor pains here. A lot of this book is about the labor pains that Israel's going to go through. Well, let me tell you about the labor pains. The labor pains begin with the Babylonian captivity. That's their first set of labor pains. The second labor pain that they go through is when Titus comes and destroys Jerusalem and sends the Israelites off into a permanent captivity. It's permanent uh, in the sense that it lasted 2,000 years. And now they're coming back into the land as we speak. Then they're going to go through the greatest set of labor pains. And when is that going to happen? That's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. So back in verse number 10, he says, be in pain and labor to bring forth. I mean, all of this is God's plan to bring forth the millennial Israel, to bring forth an, an Israel of people who aren't wicked, an, a, a, an Israel made up of his remnant. He, so he says, be in pain and labor to bring forth the daughter of Zion like a woman in birth pain. For now you shall go forth from the city and you shall dwell in the field and to Babylon you shall go. You're going to be you're going to be taken into captivity. That's going to be the first captivity. And there you will be delivered 
Uh, God's going to protect you. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemy. So after that captivity in some ways is going to save their lives. But now he goes back into this and, and, and before the Babylonians come, he basically says, hey, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, for he has laid siege against us. I think he's speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Jerusalem. And they will strike the king or the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. And that's exactly what they did. They killed the, the, the king of Israel, Zedekiah. So, so uh, basically, this, is, this, is, this prophecy uh, is a bleak forecast of things to come for the nation of Israel. And right on cue in the book of Micah, he gives you this really bleak news about the immediate future and about the coming future. And then he talks about the great hope of Israel. What's the great hope of Israel? It's a person. Who is it? It's the, their Messiah, none other than Jesus Christ. So he, so he gives them this news that, hey, you can get your armies together. You can do whatever you want. But, hey, the, the king Nebuchadnezzar is going to lay siege to Jerusalem. The king's going to be destroyed, and you're going to go off into captivity. But then comes this wonderfully specific prophecy about Jesus Christ and his first coming. Now, we're not told here that it's his first coming, but little children, you have an anointing and you know all things we're told in first John and the mysteries of God to some degree have been revealed to us because we have the new Testament and there these mysteries are revealed and see, we know that he had a, he, he was rejected at his first coming. We see that in the gospel, but we also know that he's going to come again. Well, Mike is not going to make that distinction because he didn't have a New Testament and all the mysteries of God had not been revealed to him. And so that's where you're going to have this chronological issue here because he's not going to lay it out like, you know, we see it in the New Testament. It's not going to be laid out like that. It's going to be laid out the way the spirit of God gives it to him. And it almost seems a little bit out of order. But I think God does that intentionally at that point because he was just giving them a glimpse of the future. And listen to what he says. And this prophecy is so important. He says, this is the prophecy that Herod saw was given to Herod. And the reason he went to Bethlehem and had all of those children under two killed because he realized that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. So Micah chapter five, verse two, he says, but you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among thousands of Judah. In other words, out of all the cities of Judah, out of all the great cities in Judah, the very smallest city is where the Messiah came. He came to the little town of Bethlehem. We know all about the little town of Bethlehem because we, every Christmas we sing a little town of Bethlehem. And, and it's a little town. It was probably a town of two or 300 people when the Messiah came. Uh, it, but it was a very significant town because he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you, and he, he, there's two Bethlehems in that area, and so he nails it down to the one near Jerusalem. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among thousands of Judah, the smallest among the thousands of cities in Judah, yet out of you shall come forth, I would say from me, is it maybe a better translation there, shall come forth me, the one to be the ruler of Israel, the ruler of Israel, the all-time greatest ruler of of Israel, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one that will not only rule Israel, but he will rule the world. 
And here's what I love this passage right here. And, and you know, sometimes we let things get mundane because we become over familiar with a passage. But every time I see this passage, I get excited about it. He says, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Wow. Back in chapter four, he talked about the millennial reign of the king of kings and lord of lords of the Messiah. But now he talks about his, that's his second coming. Now he talks about, see how out of, out of chronological order all of this stuff is. Now he talks about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And we know that this is, I'm, I'm sorry, the second coming. No, the first coming of Jesus Christ. The millennial rule is his second coming. And so uh, uh, he says, to Bethlehem, the Messiah will come. He makes this prophecy 700 years before it happens. 700 years. I mean, he predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And when he's born in Bethlehem, it's maybe the smallest city in all of Judah. And David had been born in Bethlehem, but David's descendants at this point, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, are long gone. They, they, when David moved to Jerusalem and became king of Israel, most of his descendants with, went with him to help him rule. Most of those people moved to Jerusalem too. Then came the Babylonian captivity and the, and the diaspora that took place with the Babylonian cap, captivity and all of the Jews in Bethlehem were sent off and they were marched off to, to, uh, to uh, Babylon and to the Babylonian empire and uh, scattered all over the place. And so when Jesus came, or actually when Joseph and Mary were about to give, when Mary was about to give birth to Jesus, where was Joseph and Mary living? They were living in Nazareth. And they didn't know anybody in Bethlehem. I mean, it was such an insignificant city that all the, the descendants of David had gone. And they didn't know anybody in Bethlehem. But now Micah said that if you had shown, the Micah said that they're going to be born, that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, if you had shown this prophecy to Mary right after she was told that uh, she was going to bear the Messiah, she would have said, well, the baby's going to be born in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem. There's a problem here. But what happened? Caesar Augustus declared a census and he made everybody go back into their to, to their, to where they were originally born or where they were originally, where their descendants were originally from. And they had to go back to that area. And so they had to go back or they had to go to Bethlehem. And, uh, uh, I mean, you see the promise of God all over this thing because, because, uh, here's Caesar who thinks he's making this great decree and, and uh, he's going to get more tax money and he thinks he's something. And really he's nothing more than a puppet in the Lord's hand doing exactly what, what the Lord wanted him to do. Just as, as Micah predicted that, that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem, one of the smallest cities in all of uh, Judah and really in the whole world. Now, and one of the most other than David and the Messiah, it would be nothing more than a, it would be a very insignificant city. How could Micah predict such a thing? I mean, how in the world could Micah know this? Well, he didn't know this. 
Remember what Micah said back in chapter three. He says, I'm full of the power by the spirit of the Lord. And so it's by the spirit of the Lord that he knew this. Well, how did the Lord know it? Because the Lord is omniscient. He knows all things. He's already seen the future. He's already seen it before it's happened. And, and, and the fact that the Lord's going forth are from everlasting means he's been in all, all parts of time. That's why Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, could go back and, and, and meet with Moses at the burning bush. He could meet with Abraham and, and walk and talk with Abraham. Uh, that's because he is from everlasting, as he says right here. What a description of the Lord. I mean, what a description. Is, is the Messiah God? You better believe he's God because this nails it down. His goings forth are from old, from everlasting. He's always been around. And only God has always been around. I love Moses' description of God in Psalm 90. Listen to what he says. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting. Now, now he said, he's speaking to God who's formed the earth and formed the world. If you want to be a Trinitarian here, what person of the Trinity actually created the universe and created the world? The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Because we're told in which he's the father also created and the spirit also had his part in it too. But in Psalm 90 verse two, uh, no, I'm sorry. In, in uh, Colossians chapter one, verse 16, where Paul tells us for by Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So he is the creator. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He's God. And Micah prophesies about him some 700 years before he's born on this earth. I mean, to me, that's just absolutely amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. Now, Micah totally changes gears now. And in this almost cryptic way, he comes to chapter three and he comes there skipping a really long period of time between uh, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Look at verse number three. He says, therefore, he shall give them up. There's this period of time where he gave Israel up. He shall give them up until the time that the one who is in labor has given birth. Now we talked about those labor pains a while ago. What part of, which labor pains is he speaking of here? Well, we don't, we don't know exactly, but again, the first labor pain was the Babylonian captivity, a set of labor pains. That was a terrible time for Israel. And they were sent off into captivity. Then came the time and, and they were given up. And then they were brought back into the land and they went back, right back to their wicked ways and they killed the Messiah. And I think at this point is where Mike is picking up. And so therefore, since they rejected Jesus Christ as their God and as their king, God will give them up. So we're looking at the second set of labor pains here. I believe what he's referring to in verse number three, when Titus, the Roman general came in, and destroyed Jerusalem and sent the Israelites off into captivity. 
at that point again. And it seems like God had given them up. It, if you look at the history, history of the Israelites uh, from the time period of when, when the temple was destroyed in, in Rome, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in Rome, in Jerusalem until 1949 when they became a country, it looked like God had given them up. If you'd ask anybody if they thought that one day Israel would become a nation again, they would have said that's absolutely impossible. God's given them up. When you looked in, I mean, right before they became a nation, you look at what happened to them in World War II, the way Hitler almost destroyed the whole Jewish race. It looked very much then that like God had given them up. But that's exactly the reason all of that was being allowed so that that nation would be born. So those people would realize that they had to go back into the land. The only way he could have got them back into the land working with their choice. I say, oh, he, he wasn't just going to pick them up and move them over there. He had to get them to make that decision to go over there. But it looked like he had given them up. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel and he shall stand and feed. And going to verse number four. Now we're back. It looks like he's given them up. They go through the great tribulation and then the Lord returns and he stands on Mount Zion and listen to what it says in verse number four. It says in verse number four, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall abide, they'll live in peace. There's maybe a better translation there. For now he shall bring, he, for now he, the Messiah, shall be great to the ends of the earth. So here Micah moves forward to the millennium where Christ will rule on his throne in Jerusalem in the strength of Jehovah, God, his father. And, and uh, uh, he will rule in the majesty of the name of Jehovah. How, how, how does he do that? Because his name means Jehovah is salvation. And on the very walls of the city will be written Jehovah to Sikkanu. Uh, God is our righteousness. And our righteousness comes from who? It comes from none other than Jesus Christ. And he will stand, looking back at verse number four, and he will feed his flock. He will feed them with his word. And people are going to listen to his word. They're going to feed off of his word. And he's going to feed his word to Israel. He's going to continue to feed his word to the church. And he's going to feed it to the nations of this world. And he will be great. His name will be great. And he will be great to the very ends of the earth. Uh, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You know what? He's great now. People don't see it, but he's great now. Uh, but one day they're going to recognize just how great he is when he stands in his glory and he feeds his flock. And everybody that lives on this earth will be his flock at that point. All the wicked will have perished and uh, uh, gone to Hades and waiting for the, they'll be waiting for the uh, white throne judgment where they'll be cast in the lake of fire. And we'll be looking at that Sunday. So you have that to look forward to. <laughs> uh, now, again, the last part of chapter Five is very, very difficult to translate. So uh, 
I mean, the English is good, a good translation in, in the New King James, but to figure all of this out, you, you, it's, it's difficult to do. So, uh, but let's give it a shot. Look at verse number five, verse number five and uh, verse number six. It says, when the Assyrians come into our land. Now, I think what he's doing at this point, he's going to address the immediate problem that Israel had. At the time Micah was speaking this prophecy, the Assyrians were the great empire on the earth. And they were making these uh, expeditions, these military expeditions down into Israel. And it was just a few years after Micah wrote this prophecy or spoke this prophecy that the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians and they went off into captivity. And it looked like they were going to go into captivity. If you remember the early part of Micah, uh, Micah warned them that they were about to go into captivity. But we know from, from the book of Jeremiah that Israel did repent. They weren't taken captivity by the Assyrians. And they went on for another hundred or so years. And then they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So, so I think what he's doing right here in verse number five, he's going back to the immediate situation where the Assyrians are the enemy that they're worried about. And listen to what he says. He says, when the Assyrians come to the land and when he treads our palaces, then we shall raise against him. In other words, he's not going to get, the Assyrians aren't going to get victory over the southern kingdom because there's going to be seven shepherds and eight priestly men who stand against the Assyrians. And they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver Who's going to deliver them? God. Do you see that in caps? Thus the Lord will deliver us from the Assyrians when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. What did the Lord do? The Lord took over this battle and he took him by the nose and he sent him back down uh, uh, Sennacherib, Tiglath-Pileser. He sent them back down into Israel. I mean, back down into back up to Assyria and there they, they, were, they were killed. So it was the Lord who... Who, who took care of this battle for the southern kingdom. Uh, but the Assyrians did take over the northern kingdom. Now, who are the seven shepherds and the eight princely men? You want their names? I don't know them. I, I, nobody knows who they are. In fact, if you read a commentary where they say, I know who the seven are and the eight are, then, then you better throw that commentary away. <laughs> Or maybe read it in some more and see if maybe this guy's on to something. But, but uh, I don't think anybody knows who they are. I think maybe the seven shepherds might be some of the prophets. I mean, Micah might be one of the seven shepherds who warned the nation of Israel of their impending doom if they didn't repent. Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and uh, Hosea and, and Amos and Joel and maybe Jonah. All of these were prophets during those days. And so they might be the seven shepherds, the seven pastors who who uh, got Israel to repent. Ain't princely man. There were some really good kings in Israel during these tough times that they were going through. Hezekiah was one of them. Uh, Josiah was one of them. There were princes among these kings that, that I'm sure that's who he's speaking of. We don't know exactly who. There might be some cryptic uh, message here uh, about end times. I don't know. I'm not going to get into there and try to figure that out. Uh, seven, the number of seven is the divine number, the perfect number. Eight is the number of new beginnings. And so it, it, the right number of shepherds and, and the right number of kings 
uh, gave Israel a second chance, gave the southern kingdom a second chance. That's, that's really all I can dig out of that. But then they would go into the Babylonian captivity. And I think he skips that part, but he talked about it in chapter four in the verse, first verse of chapter one. That's what I'm saying. He's going back and forth. But they went into the ba Babylonian captivity and labor, later the Roman dispersion. But when they're scattered, when the scattering takes place in the Babylonian captivity and during the Roman dispersion, the diaspora it's called, when the Jews were scattered all over the world at that, that point, they prospered. They prospered and not only did they prosper, they blessed the people where they went. You look at the history of, of, of science and look at the history of agriculture and a lot of, a lot of uh, the, the humanities. Uh, the Jews have contributed an awful lot to the well-being of this world. I mean, they're, they're pretty sharp people. They've contributed a lot to the finances of this world. They control a lot of the finances of this world. And God's going to, uh, and Micah's going to talk about how they're going to prosper in their captivity, beginning in verse number seven. He says, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. So see, this is after the scattering, probably uh, after the Babylonian captivity, this was true. And after the Roman diaspora, this was true. They'll be like dew from the Lord. I mean, there'll be a blessing from the Lord scattered all over the land. Like showers on the grass, uh, raining down blessing that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of man. They, 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 they're going to go off as slaves and they're going to become masters is basically what he's saying here in these various lands where God scatters them. And the remnant of Jacob shall be strong among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep who if he passes through both treads down and tears to pieces and none can deliver. And so they're going to, they're going to be powerful people. The Jews are very powerful people. You just look at the United States today and they are powerful people. They're, they control a lot of the media. They control a lot of the banking, a lot of the finances. Very, very, a lot of them are actors. They control a lot of Hollywood. They're very, very powerful people. And in some ways they've blessed us, in some ways they've cursed us. But for the most part, God has used them to bless the world. Now, what comes with that? People hate the Jews. They hate the fact they have that power. They want to take that power away from them. They hate the fact that they've accumulated so much wealth. They want to take that wealth away from them. And so the devil, uh, uh, the devil uses his influence along with this jealousy of the Jews to create what we call anti-Semitism. And, and so it's a, it's a demonic thing, but it's also a human thing in that we humans are, a lot of people are jealous of the Jews. They hate the Jews because the Jews, God has blessed the Jews wherever they've gone, even in the captivity, and people hate that. They hate that. And uh, one day the anti-Semitism is going to be so bad it's going to be worse 
than in the days of Hitler. We know that during the Great Tribulation. You know, we think of the Great Tribulation, and that's why I struggle. One of the reasons I struggle with the idea of the church going through the Great Tribulation, because that time period is not about the church. That time period is about the Jews. And all of this persecution that you see in, in Revelation comes upon the Jew primarily. It's about the Jews. They're, they're, again, it's, this guy's worse, the Antichrist is worse than Hitler. And, and so they're going to go through a time of anti-Semitism worse than any they've ever experienced in, in their history. But God is going to deliver them from that. Uh, look at verse, and he, I think here he goes all the way. See how he's going back and forth in time. I think in verses 9 and 10, and you certainly could interpret this differently. But my take on this is that he's going all the way to the time he jumped all the way into the fact when they were scattered as a remnant among the lands and now he's going to go all the way to Armageddon when they're gathered back in the land and then these armies come against them and and look what happens in verses 9 and 10. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries and your enemies shall be cut off and it shall be in that day says the Lord that I will cut off your horses. He's talking about those armies that come against uh, Israel in the battle of Armageddon. I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. Uh, but that's far off in the future. So for now, you know, the, uh, the labor pains are going to come from the Babylonians and the Romans and then from the Antichrist in the end. And, uh, So he goes back now in the last few verses that we look at and he talks about this, these labor pains that they're going to suffer from the hands of the Babylonians and the Romans. And listen to what he says. And this, this is how they're thrown into, cap, into, into captivity or, or scattered throughout the land. They're into captivity and they're scattered throughout the land. Look at verses 11 through 15. He says, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your land and you shall have no soothsayers. See, he's going, he's addressing their immediate wickedness where they were at at that point in time. And they're going to repent from that. And, and they're going to avoid being taken captive by the Assyrians. But then the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to be destroyed because of these reasons. And this is what the Lord's going to do to them when he sends the Babylonians in. But it's also they're going to go back into the land and they're going to kill their Messiah, the one who should have been their king. If they had had a, uh, uh, their hearts were right and they had received Jesus as they should have received him. But God knew they weren't going to do that. They're not going to do that. They wouldn't do that in the millennium if it wasn't for the fact that God pours out his spirit upon them. And they're changed and they look on the one whom they pierced and they cry as a mother cries for, you know, weep. They weep as a mother weeps for the loss of her firstborn son. They're going to do that in the millennium. But they, they're blinded to the truth at this point. When, and, and so they're going to go back into their wicked ways. They're going to repent because they're afraid of the Assyrians and they see what the Assyrians are doing. And then they're going to be, they're going to uh, repent. And they're going to, but they're going to go back to their wicked ways. And then the Babylonians are going to come down and they're going to destroy Israel and take them captive. And then they're going to go back into the land. They're going to kill the Messiah. And the Romans are going to destroy them and take them captive. So uh, then the Antichrist will come and take them captive. So, so here's why he, he says all of this happens, beginning in verse number 11. 
He says, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off the sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more soothsayers or idolatry. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred, sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities. And then in the last days, if you look down at verse number 15, not only will Israel be judged, but other nations will be judged too. All the nations of the world will be judged. And so he's speaking to them back in the, the 8th century B.C. And he's telling them about this final judgment of the world during the Great Tribulation. And he says, I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that you haven't even heard of yet. In other words, all the nations at some point are going to be judged because all the nations at some point will go the way that you've gone. They will become a haunt for every evil spirit, be full of, their armies will be big, but they'll be full of witches and soothsayers and idolatry. Could that be true? I mean, could one of those nations be the United States of America? Let me tell you what it is, one of the nations. Because all the nations of this earth are going to be judged in the Great Tribulation. I mean, I believe the United States of America is one of the, maybe the greatest nation that has ever existed on this earth. And I believe that even now, as bad as things are, there's a strong remnant of righteous people made righteous by Jesus Christ who are living righteous by the Spirit of God. But one day, when the great, before the Great Tribulation begins, those people are going to be pulled out of here. That which is preventing the Antichrist from coming on the scene and doing his thing, Paul tells us we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians, is pulled out of here. You can say the church or the Spirit, either way, I think it's both. And so the church is pulled out of here and then this nation is left with nothing but, I almost said Democrats, but I don't want to say that. <laughs> I don't want to make it, a, a lot of Republicans will, will, be, will still be here too. But this nation will be left with a bunch of wicked, wicked people. And, and you don't have to look far to see those wicked people now. There's a lot of wickedness going on in the United States of America. What was, to some degree, a godly nation has become, in some people's eyes, the most wicked nation on earth. So America will be judged at some point. America will be judged. The good news is the one who's going forth or from everlasting came to Bethlehem with a purpose to go to the cross to die for our sins so that we can live with him forever and ever and ever. And we're not appointed to wrath. He's going to get us out of here before all of these things that we're reading about take place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the encouragement of your word and, and Lord, how blessed we are 
to be recipients of your mercy and grace. Lord, we've done nothing to deserve salvation other than look at that cross and and believe that you died for our sins. Father, we live in a wicked, wicked world and, and you leave us here for one purpose and that's to be your light and to be your witness because we are your light. Lord, I just ask that you you make our light shine brightly in these last days and that we do have opportunities to lead others to Christ. Father, we want to see a revival in this country before you take out your people and you bring your wrath upon this world. Father, we all deserve your wrath and we thank you for the blood that, that takes that wrath away. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.